Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to episode four of Still Watching Mayor of Easttown. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time on this podcast, what we like to do every week is sort of pick a show that Richard and I are watching closely, kind of obsessively. We break it down. But first, we want to get to some emails from you all, some corrections, comments, theories. You can always email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We get a ton of emails. They're all so interesting. I will just throw out this one tip. Uh, if you really want to make sure we're going to read it, try to make it not a dissertation length. That's all I'll say. We want to read everything. Sometimes the emails are very, very long. So um, eh, yeah, or, or write a long email and maybe we'll read it. But um, if, if you want to make sure it's read on air, which is not everyone's goal, uh, maybe it should be a little a little tighter. All right, Richard. But but well, know that we are reading them regardless of whether we, are. we read them out on air. We are <laughs> oh, yeah. reading every single one. We're, re- we're reading all of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just like it's hard to encapsulate something so long when we want to sort of communicate it back on air. So, Richard, what do you what do you have for us this week? Well, we have a few emails that jumped out at me. The first is kind of cl- – maybe clarifying or at least offering a theory toward um, something we talked about last week, which was what is the title of the episode enter number two? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So Rob wrote to us and he said, regarding the meaning of the episode title, my sense from your interview with Craig Zobel is that they are not interested in crazy out of left field. It was Mephisto disguised as Kaiser Soze twists. If we take this to mean the show prefers to be much more straightforward with the audience than most whodunits, perhaps all the title means is that the prime suspect at the end of episode two is Frank, but episode three negates much of that suspicion, and the show then focuses on its second, number two, prime suspect, the Deacon. Which I think is a concise way of, you know, kind of interpreting that title. Um, I don't think our suspicion of the Deacon has uh, abated any after watching this episode. Um, I have have another theory on the on the title is that okay yeah um i've heard this from a couple people that enter number two is a lyric from a gordon lightfoot song and the gordon lightfoot song is kind of gibberish a little bit but 
the gist of that section where um, he says enter number two um, is it's about a like a love triangle. So the question is, is enter number two a reference to um, Detective Colin Zabel uh, entering Mare's, uh, you know, love interest pool? Mm, I shall say. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is not, which was not immediately obvious. I think at the end of episode three, in terms of like he he gives her that that like sly little look and grin in the bar, and he obviously admires her, and she gives him a look back, like I know you know, I know, I know, we know what we're looking at here. <laughs> but I think I think it becomes you know it becomes a little bit more of a thing in this episode. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I actually googled this week's. Uh, <laughs> title which i should have done last week before we started do you want to read the rest of the emails or do you want to hear my uh what what this week's title is yeah no go to? let's get into that and then i'll do the other emails okay so this week's episode is titled uh poor sisyphus and um you know uh, we're a lot of us nerds around here we know who sisyphus is we know our greek mythology uh sisyphus doomed forever to push a rock up a hill um and ha- only to have it roll back down and push it up again. And there's many ways you could think about um, Sisyphus as it applies to Mare. Like, you know, another girl goes missing. Like, there's, you know, there's just this sort of trudging sort of thing. But um, I-, I was curious by the use of poor in front of it. And I was like, well, that's probably like another song lyric or a uh, line of poetry or something like that. And it is indeed uh, from uh, a poem called Gabriel by Edward Hirsch. Um, sort of about Sisyphus. Um, and it goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a whole poem right now. It goes, I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. I did not know how I would struggle through a ragged underbrush without an upward path. Look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. So, um, and, you know, I, I think this idea of like a lot of people here are, are struggling through a similar uphill climb. I think, you know, there's a lot of parallels to Dawn and Mayor in this episode. Um, you know, the things that make us the same are, are stronger often than the things that make us different. But I, I think especially that opening scene when Mayor gets up out of bed, her family doesn't know what's happened with her job. She gets up, like, sort of struggles to get up out of bed in this empty house with no job to go to. Um, so I think that's sort of the the overt reference there. But yeah, I would say even in a, in, a, in in also, I think that's correct. But also in a more macro sense, I was thinking a lot watching this episode um, about how the show is so concerned with two major things that are really interlinked. One being the opioid crisis, which has ravaged America and still is. Um, And the other being how many instances we see in this episode and previous episodes of one character saying to another adult character or teen character, can you take care of blank? Can you watch blank? You know, there's so much in this show that's about the maintenance of of like child care and how to care for people and how to, you know, not even, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a sick brother or a, you know, an ailing mother. Like it's, there's so much in the show that it's about like those communities coming together Mm -hmm. to tend to each other when maybe the social safety net has abandoned them, when healthcare has abandoned them, you know, all this stuff. And then to have the opioid crisis put on top of already, you know, economic ruin and all this stuff, like the community is engaged in its own kind of Sisyphean ordeal every day um, mm-hmm. that just now keeps getting worse. I mean, I think it's not an accident that the title, yes, reflects Mayor getting out of bed, but also the fact another girl has gone missing. You know, mm-hmm. so like just when there's maybe a little bit of progress in one thing, Correct. then another thing comes tumbling down the hill. Um, so it's really, I think this is the episode I felt that really rooted itself most potently in the despair of this community while also showing in a hopeful sense or a sort of bittersweet sense, how used to and practice in um, sort of mutual aid um, this town has become. Yeah. We talked about tribalism and I think earlier, and I think that idea of like circling the wagon around like us and ours is important, but I think also exactly what you're saying, this whole, like, I think 
the space that this episode makes for the Beth and Dawn relationship being like Lori and Mare aren't the only like close friends out of this basketball team in this community. We've got Dawn and Beth here um, supporting each other, you know, Beth in, in, you know, trying to help Dawn with her grief around her daughter and, and watching her grandkid for her and, um, and Dawn in, you know, hiding the truth about, best brother to sort of spare her in some way. Um, And I think that that's all it's interesting. And it's interesting how much room this show has for all of these people, which really does show you that like um, this, though we are interested in the, in the who is kidnapping these girls who killed Aaron, who is the father for baby. Like that's all interesting to us. But ultimately this is, I forget if you're the one who said this or, or if someone else said this to me, but like the, the most important thing is like, is everyone going to be okay in this town? Do you know what I mean? That's what I'm most concerned about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, that brings the show into a sort of political space and a political allegory where it's like, how are any of these towns going to be okay? You know, like they're doing so much to support each other, but like, it's only like, it's not enough clearly, you know? Um, and I just think that that sort of very sad political dimension, I really think is going to come to bear on whatever the finale of this show is, um, some sort of commentary on like what system, not the systems they've put in place in the, in, you know, in the absence of another system, but like the bigger thing, like why hasn't the country helped them? Why hasn't their government helped them? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to get overtly about that, but I think that's definitely baked into the DNA of this um, show and its spe- specific place and people. Well, I think, I mean, sorry, I, I know we're like sort of wandering into our discussion of the episode, but I think when you think specifically of these girls, like we've got this new girl, Missy, and we've got Aaron, and both of them are on this sort of sex, uh, you know, work website, Missy to support a, a drug habit that came out of an in, a hip injury. And this is like speaks to the opi- opioid crisis. Um, subject you brought up and then Aaron, you know, because she wants to get ear surgery for her kid and but but that's that's a failure of the healthcare system on both ends, you know what I mean? That that these girls um you know, and I'm I'm not trying to like completely um villainize sex work, like sex work that's a whole different conversation, but I just mean like these girls are are doing something that puts them in a vulnerable position, at least through this outlet. Um because you know they're they've got their backs up against the wall about something well no one should feel they have to enter sex work out of desperation exactly you know? exactly yeah. um and i think that's the point it's making and you know yeah i mean i think if you were to boil it down to those two stories aaron's and missy's if they had had like responsible adequate health care <laughs> right uh they wouldn't have been in their positions but we don't know what what happened with aaron that's true but like you know i don't know i i think that there's definitely some social commentary being made uh, especially in this episode that's like how breaking bad is about the healthcare system so yeah. you know well yeah. and and actually you know i, I will we'll get back to the emails i promise but but talking about the missy thing and and then the reveal at the end of the episode that katie is alive mm-hmm. made me think that maybe the person abducting them is thinks they're doing good and it thinks that they're going to isolate them so they can detox you know maybe there's a grim sort of um good samaritan but doing it in bad ways kind of thing happening someone wants to clean up their town you know so that kind of shifts focus away from the deacon because this isn't his town um so oh i definitely don't think it's the deacon but we'll talk about all that okay what else we got all right back to emails back to theories um (laughs) so we have an email from dave who um in, in in an echo of a lot of other emails we got is really interested in these Ross brothers or cousins. Um, he writes, Aaron's baby is a full on ginger, a crazy redder than red redhead. At the end of the second episode, when it's made known that Aaron shared that Dylan isn't the baby daddy, but didn't say who it was. I immediately started to scope out who are the redheaded males in her life. And there's one that stands out her uncle question mark, Billy Ross. There are a couple of shots that catch his facial hair in just the right light to show that it's Ginger. That, coupled with his extreme unease since her death, my money is on him as the father of Aaron's kid. Um, And then he goes on to ask if there are any other redheads we missed. Um, And I don't know if there are. But I think the focusing on on these Ross family members is interesting because we got a lot of emails about both John Ross and Billy Ross. Yeah, I think that uh, Billy Ross... uh 
at this moment, knowing that Frank and Dylan are absolutely not the father, um, you know, and what would be interesting about that paternity test is I wonder, I wonder if it might reveal like, because in, in that case, he's not, he's not her uncle. He's her father's cousin, but like might as well be uncle. Right. You know, like that's essentially that relationship. And you know, that's a, that's that's an incestuous abusive relationship with yeah. an underage girl um and um i i would have to wonder if the paternity test would reveal uh, you know that the father of the baby is um you know a closer genetic match to aaron or something like that i don't know but i because obviously i'm not a geneticist but um but i i completely i'm all in on this theory that billy who is John's brother and Kenny's cousin is the father of the baby, but I don't think he's the killer. But within that family, I think you had brought this up earlier, but they did it again in this episode. Lori and John's son, Ryan, Uh had that weird moment where he walks out and it's, you know, there's a news broadcast about the three gone girls and he's kind of staring intently and the parents stare intently back at him and he asks what we, they should be doing. And it's just like, why is that scene in there? If, I mean, yes, maybe it's just showing that the, these things have effects on everyone in the town, especially maybe kids. Um, but like, I don't know. I feel like there's something else at work in those dynamics. I think what's also true. So we're, we're a little over halfway through the season. I think what's also true in a story like this though, is that, people can act suspicious for other, you know, like sure, that there are yeah. other secrets and lies being kept in this town. Right. So um, absolutely. I, I definitely clocked that scene. Uh, it was, it stuck out even more than anything else we've seen from that kid, I think, because there's no other reason for that scene. Um, because it's not like he's interrupting a conversation that John and Laurie are having that feels like somehow important. So, um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very curious moment. Uh, Unless they're just trying to illustrate that, like, being a kid growing up in a community where this is happening, like, that adds to the Sisyphean thing. Because now, oh, now you have to tend to Ryan and make sure his, like, like, you know, and kids like him, like, what kind of psychology, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it could be both, I guess, part of the texture of this sociology and also maybe, like, putting him as potentially on the suspect list um, for whatever reason. Um, so the last email I wanted to read is a theory, but Joanna, it doesn't really have anything to do with the murder. Well, it sort of does. Okay. So this is from Kyle. Um, and he says to preface this and the, the subject of the, of the email is Richard theory. Um, and it's not about me. I got kind of excited when I, opened I it, also but, got um, excited. Yeah. It was about you, <laughs> but you know, if you want to email me about me, that's fine. If you guys want to do it. Um, anyway, he says to preface this, I don't believe that Richard is the peeper or the murderer, but I do believe he is in East town for ulterior motives that are, we are not fully aware of yet. Basically my theory centers on that national book award that Richard received for a book whose plot we know nothing about currently. I find it odd that a writer with such prestige would take up an adjunct teaching job at a small college in the middle of nowhere. I think Richard is working on his second National Book Award novel about a small town and a disappeared young woman with no clues over a year later. I think Richard came to town to research the book and the area and then try to reclaim some of his former glory, as many writers do now, with true crime. Kind of like Ethan Hawke's character from that horror movie, Sinister. Uh, this is something I've been banding about with my partner as we have watched the first three episodes and we both agree there's something going on with Richard. Um, interestingly, uh, Kyle, who, uh, is a producer and writer on the couch potatoes podcast, um, shares that theory with another podcast host, Bobby finger, uh, who hosts who weekly co-hosts that Uh show texted me and some other friends about mayor of Easttown. He was like, so Richard's definitely there researching a book, right? And I hadn't even thought about that. And then to get Kyle's email, it's a very funny. So it seems like that that theory is out there. And I, I kind of dig it because I think there's something going to go with that character and the idea that someone is kind of parachuting in to exploit in some senses or compassionately report on. But maybe there's, you know, that's kind of in the eye of the beholder, uh, this town's plight. I think that would be an interesting dimension to add to that sociology. Yeah, and I think I think what, an instinct, other than our fact of like Guy Pierce can't just be here to like walk around campus and have coffee with Mayor, is like, um, I th- <laughs> I think having seen how much Mayor has gone through, I think we're on it in a defensive crouch around him, right? Like this guy who seems nice and interested in her life, there has to be some some 
catch there, right? Not that like Mare, you know, Mare looks like Kate Winslet, even with like her hair grown out. She's beautiful. Like, it's not like, you know, why would he be interested in her? But like, it, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious. And I think also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what purpose the love triangle serves here, right? The like, Colin being interested in her and Richard being interested in her. And like, once again, she's like, a smart, great at her job, looks like Kate Winslet woman. So like, she's an impressive woman. I'm not questioning why they would be interested in her. But like, why is this a part of the story? And there's, there's like, two couple reasons that I can think of. One is this, like that there's some catch with Richard. Um, and I love this theory much more than like, he is somehow the murderer, even though they were having sex at the time. Um, and two, to watch what decision she makes. Is she going to make a self-destructive decision here? Or is she going to make a healthy choice for herself here? Are her instincts about Richard, which she, you know, she's been, she, she's, she likes him obviously, but she's also pretty cautious around him. Like are her detective instincts about Richard going to like pop, pop to the front? You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this theory and, and by this question. So, yeah. It also makes me wonder as the other, both of Mayor's love interests are new to town. True. Which then I start thinking about, is it possible that Colin, the dutiful young good cop, is trying to clean up the streets in uh, creative ways <gasps> oh. by getting these women off the street? And then somehow got himself on this case so we could be closer to it and maybe sort of also do his work in the town. I think that the scene that he had with his mom, where it didn't seem like an overbearing relationship or anything, but there was clearly a sort of view from another town over about East Town. Mm-hmm. Like, they, the police can't handle it over there. It's good that you're there. You know, all this mm-hmm. stuff. I just felt a little bit like they were setting him up more as the other um, – I don't know. I don't. I don't want to think that Colin is involved, but like – it's possible. No, I mean, it's always a good idea to be suspicious of uh, a law enforcement person in a crime story who's like eager to get close to the case. That's we've seen that story before where that person turns out to be the murderer. So um, sure. I'm happy. I'm, you know what? You don't have to twist my arm to keep my eye on Evan Peters. That's fine by me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What else do we have? Uh, well, that was it for my emails, but I think you had singled out some like l- some snippets from things to kind of address briefly. Yeah, we got a correction on the pronunciation of the actress playing Siobhan, uh, the great, uh, we were mispronouncing her name, but I guess it's Angowry Rice. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of her work, so I apologize if I've been butchering her name. Um, we, oh, we got a question about why Colin and Mayor were in the same bar, since like Colin isn't from Easttown, but he was at his... 15 year high school, you know, reunion after party. Why were at the same bar? My guess would be she wasn't in town because she was on her way to plant the heroin. Right. right. So she was, you know, a town, two towns over or whatever. And that just happened to be where he was celebrating. Sure. It's a little bit of a coincidence, but this is a TV show. So it's okay. And maybe there aren't that many bars, you know? Yeah, true. Um, and then we got uh, someone sort of tried to clarify the email that I kind of tried to do uh, Mayor's personal timeline email saying that it, someone said it was two years since Kevin died. I think Mayor herself said that it's two years since Kevin died. So that's, that's the timeline info that we have here that, you know, her marriage falling apart, Frank getting engaged again, blah, blah, blah. It's been two years. And I will say, I know we got a lot of emails about Faye last week, but I've heard even more people be very suspicious of Faye. Um, knowing that Faye, who's Frank's fiance, might um if she suspected frank and aaron's relationship wasn't on the up and up um that he wasn't just helping a student of his um that maybe when he was passed out drunk she uh she went out and and did something so and and speaking of Faye, uh she's played by kate arrington uh Mm -hmm. who among all of her acting credits is also married to michael shannon uh, and I didn't realize oh. that there was that celebrity connection, but also I didn't realize that Carrie is played by Kevin Bacon's daughter. Uh, now you say it, I can't stop seeing so it in the face. Shoji Bacon <laughs> and Kira Sedgwick's daughter, I assume. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so oh, okay. um, we've got a, a nice host of New York theater actors, some of whom have um, glitzy connections. 
Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Excellent. Um, so let us, so we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. We're, we're going to sort of chunk things out by like storyline and character. Um, just because this show, uh, you know, as I said, it has space for so many characters. And that just means we hop around a lot. Um, in a way I don't actually find disorienting, um, now that I feel like I have a firm grip on who all the characters are, but in a way that makes it sort of hard to talk about the episode chronologically. So we're going to talk about it by sort of theme or, or character. And we're going to start kind of with the big one, which is this, um, <laughs> I put it down as Silence of the Lambs guy, but anyway, this guy, uh, some white male, is uh, making uh, dates with uh, women on this uh, website side door and then kidnapping at least two of them, uh, Katie Bailey and Missy Sager, um, uh, are now holed up at, I think it's Benny's Tavern is the location. Um, so what do you what do you think, Richard? What do you think of this new this new storyline here, or yeah. new old storyline? I, I mean, it's introducing an element that yes is reminiscent of silence of the lambs kiss the girls you know women held in captivity for various nefarious reasons um and i think that maybe you could argue that oh this is getting a little cinematic this is getting a little bit soapy um which is something i've been concerned about the show and i had heard from a a colleague of ours who had watched further episodes that this is when the show did get really soapy and i was kind of nervous i didn't find it to be that i i think that yes does this kind of thing happen all the time? No, but this kind of thing has happened. Um, you know, we've, people have been found living in people's houses after being missing for decades, you know. Um, so it's not that implausible. And I do think that that is when that theory sparked for me where I was like, I mean, it, how I wouldn't have had any reason to think this beforehand, that like, this person thinks they're doing good, maybe. Mm. And yes, they're doing it in terrifying, violent ways that like, is probably just as harmful as anything else. But um, I kind of wonder if like the, the someone thinks they can patch up this town by getting Mm -hmm. these women uh, who are in a bad way, um, you know, isolated. So maybe at least so they can, you know, detox. Um, And who would be doing that? It could be, it could be a lot of people. I do think though, with the introduction of this plot line where Katie's alive and, and Missy is now imprisoned with her. I do think that that further separates Aaron's death from them. I think that they're maybe somewhat related, but I don't think it's the same person. Yeah, I don't know. I go back and forth on that um, because there are ways in which I I want to say they're not related, and maybe it is just Billy Ross, and maybe uh, and and you know maybe given what. Um, Craig Zobel, the director of the series, said to us on this podcast last week about like they're not going to just blindside you with a rando as the murderer. You know, it's it's important to keep an eye on all these characters we've already met. Um, but then you get to I really like you know we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about Mayor's detective work later on, but this idea that Hauser, who is this new guy that that Colin has to work with, um, someone whose trunk he took a shit in when they were graduating from police academy, um, that he's like, no way are these cases connected because Aaron is like, you know, kind of a 
a good girl victim. And, you know, if, if there's, there felt like something very like judgmental in his separation of Katie Bailey and Missy Sager and Aaron McMiniman. And I liked that, um, Mayor is like, are they that different? Like, not in a judgmental way towards Aaron, but just sort of like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think this guy has a surface read of who these girls are. And Mayor discovering that Aaron had a side door account as well. That might just be leading us down, you know, a, another red herring path. And maybe we do need to keep our eye on the prize of someone closer to home. But, um, I, I, I like I said, I keep flip flopping on whether or not I think it's more interesting if all three are connected and maybe what happened with Aaron is whoever this guy is tried to take her. And as we've mentioned before, this death seems like an accident almost like he was trying to take her at gunpoint and the gun went off in a way that he didn't mean for it to. And she died. Um, whereas these other kidnappings were more quote unquote, uh, successful, not a way I like to describe a kidnapping. Um, you know, I, do you know what I mean? Is, is it mm-hmm. more interesting narratively if these three are connected or if it's two separate but similar situations? Well, both are interesting. I think that the the latter, if it's two separate things, it just kind of maybe further compounds this study of this town and, and maybe a lot of towns in America that are, you know, ba- basically ripe for kind of predation, but also various other problems that lead to tragedy. Um and they could still do that if they're the same person or they're linked in some way, you know. Um, what I think was crucial about our brief introduction to Missy uh, was that we got to know her a little bit. You know, she had this sort of, you know, sad story about going to Disney World and realizing that there are places that are never get cold and riding yeah. Space Mountain with her sister. Um, Sasha Frolova is the actress who uh, plays Missy. Um, I think she's incredible. I, that's another, it seems Same. to me, accent that gets that's totally right for the region. Um, so again, the show is doing at least, a, I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in really, you know, three, you know, imperiled or murdered girls territory. So yes, maybe it, there is a, a view of it this that, that's exploitative and a bit too familiar from tons of other narratives that we've seen in film and TV. But at least this show is doing some of its due diligence in terms of showing these people as people. Um, not just, you know, objects or victims. I was rewatching this episode, um, you know, having watched it a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about how much time the show spends on letting us know who Aaron was. And I was like, well, Missy really only not, you know, not that this is, you know, obviously she's alive at the end of the episode. It's not the last we'll see of Missy, hopefully. But like, she really only has this scene to establish her as a, you know, a person with us with their own internal story um before she gets uh kidnapped and um and i just thought she knocked it out of the park she just has like a very a, a few minutes of monologue <laughs> to get us inside of her head and and i think yeah i think that actress really killed it so yeah uh, and this this storyline runs in parallel with this other storyline we get in this episode this this sort of false flag of dawn katie's mom getting these calls and it turns out um by the episode we find out that that's best brother uh freddie who we've met a couple times yeah. who's troubled and and has a drug problem sort of uh pretending to be a kidnapper and um Don pulling the old Ocean's Eleven and cutting up some flyers to serve as money in a money bag and and going to uh, get him and falling down. A lot of women falling down in the show. Um, and hitting their heads. Uh, yeah. Um, I thought this, I don't, like, this could have been frustrating because it is such, like, a, a, a like red herring of a plot line, right? Um, but I just thought it was so good. And I just think that, like, the show actually cares about Don a lot. Um, and so it's not, ju- it doesn't just exist to fool us or confuse us. No. And I think Enid Graham, who's playing Don, is just doing such a great job that I just, I was, I was really compelled by the whole, her whole journey here, you know? Yeah. And I think that, again, the show is really careful to show, uh, Freddie, um, and Beth together, you know, and 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 Don sort of uh, being like, oh, he's living with you, you know, uh, earlier in the episode. And we also saw a flashback to when Mayor's son was alive and was, you know, really threatening her and trying to steal her mm-hmm. money and all this stuff. And I think that 
those two things together in one episode, they're really trying to dig in on what this drug crisis has done to this community, to families, you know, in ways really dramatic in ways, petty and scary and, you know, like uh, kind of running the gamut. And I think that to have that ultimate reveal that this person was just, it was just another sad spoke in this wheel of addiction that's, you know, spinning and spinning in this town. Um, it, it was poignant and it was scary. It was, but like it, I'm glad that it wasn't some other elaborate thing, you know, that it all kind of linked mm-hmm. back to stuff we already knew. Um, and there was a moment, this might sound silly, but there was a moment when Dawn was going to, you know, with the fake money and the gun in her bag, um, where I was, and she entered this dark building. I was like, oh, does she have a flashlight? That feels a little too prepared. And then, no, it was just her phone flashlight. And that somehow felt like added so Perfect. much more texture yeah. and credibility to it. It wasn't, she wasn't going in like with a super soldier, you know, mission kind of thing. It was just like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Let me turn on my yeah. phone and try to see, you know, I, I, I think that the, the show almost with that plot line could have gotten into real overamped thriller territory. And then it reined it back in, in, in subtle ways, which I appreciated. And it just felt like a really human moment for her to like look up for her to see him and like know him yeah. and he knows her and that, you know, in that moment for her to go back home and lie to Beth about it, you know, like all of that. Um, uh, Freddie is played by uh, Dominique Johnson, who is a professional basketball player. And I just want to shout out last week when I asked Craig uh why brad inglesby was so obsessed with basketball because it's been the theme of this show and also his last feature film and uh, he was like i don't know he's a tall guy who played basketball so i think he just likes it so um yeah he he cast a basketball player in this role um should we talk about is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of that storyline um no i don't think so all right let's keep an eye out for benny's tavern um mayor and colin and richard is what we're going to talk about next. The old love triangle. Um, we get, you know, uh, call a, a little bit more about Colin this week. We get his a little bit of his home life. It seems to me like he lives with his mom. If Mayor knew to find him there, I think he lives with his mom, not just like having her over for Sunday dinner. And, um, and you know, he's definitely interested in taking Mayor out for a date. Um, what do you, what do you think of this Colin Mayer situation? Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, you know, I think that I like the little moment that Mayer had with her mom where she was like, I'm going on a date. She's like with the writer. And she's like, I don't know yet. Like I have two mm-hmm. dates. I'm trying to decide. Like the, I like that they're, they're giving Mayer a little bit of a, a tiny little, you know, pep in her step, you know, with at yeah. least that, you know, to be like, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's something, still in me that can get excited about life, you know? Um, so that, I appreciate it for that respect. Um, you know, I do think that, is it in this show's tragic outlook, which I increasingly think is a tragic outlook, um, that both of these men are kind of using her. I think that's definitely possible. What's your re- okay? So you think Richard's using her for the book, and Colin's using her because he's the murderer and wants to get close to the case, or he's the abductor, not Aaron's killer. Mm, okay, maybe he thinks he's um, doing good. I don't know. I think he's just really dazzled by her, and like this is this is a this is a thing. So I'm going to call something out here, and I, and I really don't want. I hope if this person's listening. It's not really a call out of them, but I saw someone who listened, I think listens to this podcast, uh, ask a question of like whether or not Mare is likable, which is a question that gets asked a lot of um, female protagonists on shows, sure. and not really of male protagonists on shows. And like, you know, so there we had a conversation about sort of like this use of like likability around uh female characters but like then someone chimed in with like but i actually i like mare and i was like you know what i like mare too she is funny i think and she you know she's prickly and like there's a scene with Lori where Lori's like you've been pushing everyone away in your grief and you're not allowed to push me away i'm not gonna let you um and you know mare is saying like i never was alive the party and you believe that she was never the life of the party but like you can also believe that she was a little bit more she was less this before. 
um, less prickly before when she wasn't actively grieving a son that she felt like she let down some way, you know, and, um, and we get when we get that flashback, you know, it's a very it's a small difference. But like, she doesn't have four inches of roots on her wig in the flashback, you know what I mean? And it's like, mm-hmm. that's all it takes for Kate Winslet to look so much more like Kate Winslet. And so it's just sort of like, this person we're seeing now in her flannels with her like, hair unkempt and stuff like that. Like this is a woman in the throes of grief and depression, which is something we knew, but like, we kind of really know now. And so I just think that like, I, I like Mary. I think she, she cares about her family. She cares about her community. I loved watching her do her work with like, when she talks to Aaron's friend, Jess, um, and coaxes the truth out of her and all this sort of stuff like that. Like she's really good at her job. And I, I'm on, I'm on team. Colin is just dazzled by her. That's what I think. Yeah. And I, I really, I hope that I, it didn't sound like I'm implying that like no one b- would like her just no. on the merits, you know? No, um, no, no. Yeah. I just wonder like in the dramatic kind of framework of the, um, of this show, if like something bad's going to happen, but um, you know, yeah, I think, I think that there's plenty of reason for Colin without any ulterior motive to just be dazzled by her, like you said, you know, um, and, and into, you know, her, her whole vibe. Um, so we'll see. I'm fingers crossed that it's genuine, but I don't know if I trust the show yet. And I just want to give Evan Peters, like, like we talked, we praised him so much and for the, you know, drunken scene last week, but I just think there's just so many little moments that he takes uh, in this episode as well. And mostly like looks, looks at her or looks even like at his mom or stuff like that. You know, just these like quiet moments or looks at Hauser, just these quiet moments that I think he's just really inhabiting this character in a way that, you know, in, in to a greater degree than I've seen him do in anything else. Um, let's talk about Rich. Is there anything else we want to say about Richard other than what we discussed in the, in the theory uh, section earlier? No, I mean, him saying, you know, maybe I only had one book in me, put the fear of God in me, uh, to be honest, as, <laughs> as a writer with one book under his belt, um, that wasn't uh-huh. even like, you know, what I, you know, wasn't an attempt to be a great American novel or anything. Um, so, yeah, sigh about that. But uh, no, I think we've pretty much covered him otherwise. He says, does anyone ever do anything for you um, to mare? You know, and, and he wants to take her out. And so, like, let's let's say he's not there to write a book. I mean, he probably is. But, like, let's say not. he's not, like, then, then what the show is doing here is giving us someone who, like, wants to give Mare, you know, if, like, Frank always got to play the good cop and Mare always had to be the bad cop and, like, all this sort of stuff. And she has to carry so much. And he's like, let me carry some of this for you. Like, let's pretend that he has an ulterior motive and he just wants to do that. I do think an interesting thing would be for mayor to run away from that and into let's say a less advisable situation which is a, a a colleague a younger colleague you know what i mean like i just think that that's yeah um you know if he has no ulterior motive richard is the healthier choice here right so what choice is mayor gonna make if any at all so yeah um, all right. Speaking of, let's talk about Mary in therapy. Um, we only get like a very brief therapy scene here where she basically was like, therapy doesn't work on me. That's just who I am. I'm Mayor. I'm deal with it. Um, but she does, she does make some healthy, other healthy choices for herself. Like she does tell her family. She doesn't like lie and say she's, um, she tells, she comes clean about what she did pretty quickly to her family. Um, family meeting. No one, no, no one knows what the hell that is. No one means. knows what that is. Yeah. Um, what do you think of all that? Um, I, I, it was in, it was in keeping with her character to be sort of forthcoming with, at least with them, I think, you know, about something like that. Like she just, I think, I think her bluntness was, was credible. Um, and I think that, you know, it was important that, um, it was important that Helen was like, you fucking idiot. Like we could have lost him for good. Like if she, you know, if, if she knew for certain and could prove it, like that would be it. Um, so uh i think she was appropriately scolded for that um but you know but then she didn't really listen to the sort of the mandate that she not do anything with the case obviously because she spent most of the episode still investigating um with for now kind of impunity but i think that'll probably catch up to her yeah i love i love the part where she's like uh, giving uh Colin just like orders like call these people and get this and they're gonna say this but say this and he's like 
Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know you're not. <laughs> you know you're suspended, right? I know this is um, crass, but like, or or base or something. But like Evan Peters saying yes, ma'am, like that, like mm-mm. So, so <laughs> did it for me. I don't know. I don't know why, but it did. All right, let's talk about let you, let's talk about Karen and Dylan and and Drew and and um, paternity and and maternity here. We've got Carrie trying to trying to be a good mom. You know, we saw her in flashback sort of um at her worst but like here she is trying to be a good mom to her kid um she's got him pizza she's got you know she's got a little projector for him and then it just like doesn't he gets scared and wants to go home and this is this to me just felt like such a human moment and like her bringing him home and her having to like talk to mare about it um i i loved you know and like i think i think we're distrustful of Carrie because Mare's distrustful of Carrie. But I think what we learned in this episode is that she really just does want to like be in her son's life. And, and I think in terms of the, I hope everyone's okay scenario, I hope Carrie gets to be in her son's life. And I hope her son also still gets to be like in his grandmother's life. Like that's what I want out of that situation. Um, What do you think? Yeah. And, and I think that when she comes back and, you know, drops her son off at Mayor's house. And it's just like, I know it was you. Like, please, I'm trying, I'm just trying to like rebuild my life. Like, please stop. You know, I, I think that, that expresses such a, a really true and terrible conflict and dichotomy with, within these relationships, especially when, you know, drug addiction is concerned when someone's in recovery, like, Yes, of course, you want to believe that they are doing better and, you know, are, 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 are moving on with their lives. But all, oftentimes, for people who have a loved one who has been in that situation, you know that there is relapse, you know that there is backsliding, mm-hmm. you, you know, you know that there are other times in the past where you've extended that trust and it's been violated, you know, and so that that kind of moral question, that familial loving question of compassionate question of like, do I believe it this time? You know, or do I keep being a sucker and falling for it? You know, and, and I, I don't, there is never a right answer, uh, an absolute right answer, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think so in the, in those scenes, like both of them are right, you know, in a, in a, yes. in a sad way. And, Correct. Um, yeah. and I think that illustrating those tensions and those realities for many people uh, in the real world um, is another important piece of the way this show is extending a certain empathy and understanding to stuff that um, has relevance beyond like a fun Sunday night murder mystery. I was thinking about this question of like physical frailty in the show. We talked about like these women falling down um, Helen when, you know, she gets hit in the head by the door and is wheeled onto the back of the ambulance, you know, and, and they're like, do you want to, you know, she, she has Jean smart plays this really quiet nod to mayor of like, yes, I do want you to ride in the ambulance with me. Like I am, vulnerable our relationship is strained we have a lot of issues but like in this moment of physical vulnerability i need you here right and i think it's used to the greatest effect um with dylan right because dylan is a character that i really hated in the first episode then he gets shot um then he spends the next two episodes in a hospital bed and has this whole question of like paternity and last week's episode we see him bring the baby on his lap and really look at the baby and be like you know this baby dj like seems to matter to him. And in this, I I just felt so much for Dylan in this moment when he gets out of bed is an excruciating physical pain and gets out of bed to pick up and comfort the baby. Well, he's ominously Um, holding a pillow. Yes, And you're like, Oh Christ, what's going to happen? And maybe he's even considering it, you know, in a brief kind of fit of madness and anger at at Aaron. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then again, this, this show is a lot about like, tending to other people and caring for other people and that kind of responsibility and the weight of it. And, you know, in some small doses on this show, the joy of it. And this idea of Aaron lying about uh, who the father is um, because she wanted her baby to be in the, like in Dylan's family Mm -hmm. circle, right? Because his parents, as we've seen are very kind, loving people. And she wanted that tribe to be connected to her baby. Um, I just thought that that was like a really sort of beautiful part of the story. Okay. Um, speaking of which, let's talk about Mare back on the case, right? So like Mare 
defying her suspension <laughs> and Colin letting her get away with it because he's enamored of her, maybe, um, is is looking at Aaron's Instagram, finds out about Aaron being on this uh, sex work website. Um, she she discovers that Aaron had some journals that we still don't know where they are. Um, Jess tells her they're somewhere, but she doesn't find the journals there. And, uh, you know, there's that shot of Jess walking, watching them leave. Whenever someone is, like, quietly watching people leave after telling them something, I'm like, well, they were lying. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> and it's like, maybe that's just for, like, like the, the like the beats of how to, like, make a scene. You know, you have to, like, linger for a second to transition. But I'm, you know, every single one, I'm like, wait, that, that means something. <laughs> they're definitely lying but what mary does find is this necklace uh hidden sort of behind a dresser drawer that says five twenty nine seventeen, and i don't know what that means i have a theory i think that inglesby is referencing that that was two days before my 34th birthday oh yeah. okay so All right. would, i mean that All would right. make sense wouldn't it of course of course obviously. yeah they, every, a lot of people got jewelry to commemorate that that time <laughs> I got a signet ring to, yeah. for your birthday. Yeah, yeah I yeah. remember now. Um, yeah, it's uh, like, when is this show supposed to take place? Could that, uh, that feels too early for DJ's birthday. Well, like, it could also right? be, it could be the date when she met whoever the father is. That's what I'm, that's what I'm yeah. thinking. It's some sort of love token from whoever the father is. And like that date is significant, whether it was the first date or something happened on that date. Maybe it was the first time they had sex, which could be like a sort of a, a something given yeah. to someone who had groomed her, you know? There's yeah. If some- I'm just assuming that it's her uncle cousin, then like, uh, you know, it's just bleh, all of this. So yeah. Um, but you know, Mar- like we've seen before, Mary is very good at her job. Why do you think, she, you know, she does this thing where she's like, oh, I forgot my phone and goes back and asks about the journals. Why do you think she hides that from Zabel? Because she like, she lies, says, I forgot my phone. But really, she went back because she wanted to ask a question with him not there. Because I think that she still wants to own the case, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if she cedes everything to him, then it all has to go through official channels and her involvement mm-hmm. will have to sort of somehow be implied or come out, come to light, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think if she just does it surreptitiously, it both keeps her at the forefront of the investigation and protects her, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she, obviously she's going to get in trouble for all this, I would assume. I I would also have to assume. Let's talk about the Siobhan of it all. Okay, so this is something that you have been a little, like, worried about for a couple episodes, how do you feel like the Siobhan relationship as it exists here um, works for the whole show as a whole? I mean, I do think that the way Becca screamed is exactly the way I would scream if I caught my <laughs> recent ex making out with someone, granted, in their house. But, like, I just thought that scream was so funny. Um, I wrote in our notes here, uh, obsessed with her screaming. Yeah, it's, <laughs> just like, I rewound it and watched it again. Because you might be like, oh, that's too much. It's like, no, but ha- I mean, how would a teenage girl, how would a teenager, how would anyone react? It, it, it's shocking and horrible and embarrassing and sad. And like, it's just so many things in one. And how else could you express that? But like in a, you know, slasher movie scream. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I think that there was a, a crucial moment when they were at the family meeting and Siobhan was like, well, I, you know, I broke up with Becca and Helen was kind of like, well, did you meet someone else? And there was kind of a note of sort of skepticism in her voice. Mm. Whereas Mayor was like more like, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I think I, th- I think that I don't think there's any implication that the family is like homophobic or whatever. But like maybe this is all sort of being viewed as a little phase or whatever. And then when Mayor says, who's that woman with Siobhan? Like I think that noticing even if it's slight an age difference or a sort of comportment that was a bit more adult – um, there is clearly a caution around, like, or a wariness around Siobhan's sort of burgeoning life as a queer person, or you know, or just as an you know young adult. Um, that I think it'll be interesting to see how that kind of evolves because clearly they've now uh, worked this new relationship back into the family fold to some extent. Yeah, and I think I think uh, I think an instinct you had earlier is correct, which is that this relationship also represents for Siobhan um, moving away from the town. Right? There's this discussion that she has about like 
Um, don't live your life for anyone else, Siobhan. Like, you don't have to go to school here. You can go to school elsewhere. You don't have to stay here. Yeah. And you, you could see Mare being someone, you know, Mare who lives in the town she grew up in, Mare who sits on the bench dedicated to her father uh, at the beginning of this episode, all that sort of stuff. You can see Mare being someone who might hold on to Siobhan despite the difficulties in the relationship a little too tight. Like she's co-parenting with Siobhan, basically her grandkid, like um, might hold on to her tightly um, in this scenario and, and might be where I'm sure, um, you know, we can't discount uh, Siobhan's like queerness as, as part of her caution here, but I think it's also this sort of like moving away maturation element as well. Yeah. And if this delicate system of caregiving that these people have, you know, fashioned for themselves, if it mm-hmm. if if one link goes like th- this is all pretty precarious you know um and and i and i think that you know a young person like Siobhan being so keenly aware of that uh, has incredible psychological emotional burden you know and just as it might mm-hmm. for for ryan uh watching the tv you know with his parents like i, I the the way that these these not just these traumas but these responsibilities are inherited um, mm-hmm. by edge every generation i think um it it really does put Siobhan in a really really difficult spot um and i'll be curious to see where her arc takes her by the end and i liked what um what craig said on the episode last week about the accents and how um the strength of the accent is really generational yeah you know what i mean and that like with Helen, Jean Smart's character would be the strongest, and then you've got Maris played by Kate Winslet, and then you've got Siobhan is played by Anne Gowery Rice, and and like that the accent would get less and less, um, because of our like the homogenization of our country via media or whatever it is, you know what I mean? I mean, I certainly saw that in Boston. You know, when when yeah. I was in school, I went to a, a public high school in in the city of Boston, and you know the kids I, I would meet some kids parents and they would have thick boston or you know thickish boston accents that but the kids wouldn't have really any or some tr- you know faint trace of it and then maybe their grandparents were full you know southie west roxbury kind of dorchester you know um so it can even without too much in- outside influence like it it can yeah that sort of clannish kind of insular thing it it it, do- it has faded some especially with cities that are in, in flux. Um, speaking of which, we did we did ask our listeners sort of about the racial makeup of this town, um, and I got I got a few responses, including one from a friend of mine. He like sent me a lovely text about his experience growing up there. But um, I'm just going to read this email from Peter really quickly. He wrote in saying regarding the racial makeup of the show's town, being a lifelong Delco resident, Delco is very white. Approximately 80% Delco is white. The stereotypical Delco town is blue collar, white Irish and Italian Catholics being one of the closest counties to the Philadelphia prop to Philadelphia proper. Many of the city's quote unquote white flight Moved to Delco back in the day. I think it's realistic to have few people of color for this world as many Delco towns are majority white. So, um, you know, we we talked a bit last week about the, the, you know, which characters are played by black actors on this show. We've got like, you know, the captain. There is another detective who sort of was more featured early on. And I don't know if he's going to come back. Um, you know, there's Mayor's therapist and then there's Beth and Freddie. Um, and there's Siobhan's new girlfriend and just sort of like looking at, at what, what roles um, are here. You know, like, I, I think, I think there is some concern for like Freddie being sort of the most obvious uh, criminal in this town for that to be like one of the few um, black characters in this town. I'm going to, I'm just going to put a question mark around that. And keep an eye on it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Last, speaking of criminals in this town, last, uh, last person we're going to talk about here is the deacon. Um, we've got Colin sort of cornering the deacon about a sexual misconduct complaint, uh, parents of a 14 year old girl in his last parish. We do get a little bit of Colin's, uh, you know, Colin's a Catholic. We see him do grace before he eats with his mom and stuff like that. So that's just something to, to log and think about. Um, but then we've got cousin Dan, Amir's cousin Dan also goes to talk about, talk to Mark. Again, this all feels like a red herring to me, though we can't discount the bike. Uh, what do you think? That bike, yeah, that's kind of the sticky wicket, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But like, 
again, that could just be removing evidence that would lead to suspicion and not confirmation that he did anything. Like maybe he found the bike or maybe Aaron left the bike there or something like that. You know, I think that... Yeah, it's tricky. I don't know because in some ways it could they could be the show could be ultimately saying like this person has been railroaded by assumptions about the Catholic Church um and these these interactions he's had with young girls has been just sort of viewed through that lens unfairly and he's just scrambling to protect himself because he is devoted to his work. Sure. I mean, yes, that could make some sense in the, you know, in in this individual case, I think you know, at, at large, like in, in the larger sense, I don't think we're wrong to suspect. <laughs> uh, no, I think, you know. and I think it feeds in really nicely to this larger point you made at the very beginning, which is this idea of like the failure of institutions in this town and the way in which the people have to sort of create their own infrastructure out of themselves and their families. Um, because the church is supposed to be a, a source of support. Right. Right. And, and, and Aaron should be able to co- go to her deacon uh, for support in her hour of need without him being the kind of person who would dump her bike over the bridge later on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, there's a, there's a, there's a deep, something rotten in that institution um and and in all of these institutions it seems like so yeah and and i think you know in it you know an additional uh you know tragedy or catastrophe you know aside from the obvious abuse of children of the catholic church scandals uh in the united states um is that a lot of communities did that was the one locus of trust you know and and reliability and you know you could send your kids there and that was fine and they were taken care of you know and they were learning interest you know good things important things valuable things values um and then to have that sort of last bastion or 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 one of the few remaining things that were low you know community centers and and sources of pride and security to have that rot so so profoundly rotten from the inside um that was devastating you know um, and a lot yeah. of people look just look the other way because they can't lose that that thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely related to this broader look at the way that people uh, form community. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party, or having family over, or even just cooking for yourself. When all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Okay, so I I just want to... I'm going to say something and then you have, I think, one more email to read and then we're going to peace out of here. Um, I just want to shout out Gene, all of Gene Smart's like comedic moments <laughs> as Helen, um, you know, often assisted by Kate Winslet. There's like, there's just a lot of stuff about food, you know, which like feeds into like community, family nourishment, et cetera. But like, I don't know, her hiding the ice cream in the frozen vegetables bag is like one of my favorite touches that I've ever, not that like Gene Smart came up with that it was probably in the script, but one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And then her like hiding it in the, in the like bread box afterward. I like just love that. Uh, the bit with the popcorn, like, Mayor tossing the popcorn to her and stuff like that. Um, I just love like all the lived in elements of Helen in in this house, or like Mayor coming in and check with her as she's like munching on the some chips potato chips. Really she's funny. like, yeah. she's yeah. like, you okay? You good? Yeah. Good. All right. And also Helen's room. Like shout out to the production design on this show because like in Helen's room, which is just perfect, Grandma has come to live with us. Room. There's an exercise bike with like clothing hanging off of it like i'm just i'm a big fan of of all things helen and all things gene smart but i wanted to shout that out 
Um, what is the email you have for us? Rachel? Well, we we typically close out each episode of this show yes. with theories um, because it is a whodunit. Um, so I, I, you know, I think I've stated all mine. I think you know my new theory is Colin. Um, but I want to turn then to uh, Reagan, Reagan, uh, who emailed us and said, my wife thinks Aaron McMenamin's killer is El Cuco and that Holly Gibney will soon show up to help Mayer solve the case. But the kill site is too neat and clean for that. I lean more towards Ama Krellen being the killer. I don't know if Camille ever turned her in. Has anyone checked Aaron for missing teeth? Which are all, you know, both valid theories. Yes, that would be binding in stuff from elsewhere in the hbo slash still watching cinematic universe <laughs> that being sharp objects and the outsider um <laughs> the still watching eu the SWEU. um it's all one crime scene i love that for yeah, us so thank you reagan um, we'll, we'll, we'll be keeping an yeah. eye out for uh weird slime and uh patricia clarkson i guess I'm always looking out for Patricia Clarkson. Um, the last thing I want to say is this episode ends with like, you know, it's Katie. Ba- I'm Katie Bailey, which is a name we've been hearing over and over in full. Yeah. Not just I'm Katie. I'm Katie Bailey. Also, did you see that there's a billboard that, that Don put a billboard up for Katie? Oh, I didn't know. I didn't and I, I just wanted to say that in our notes, I wrote one billboard outside of Easttown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, but uh, it's Katie Bailey is the reveal. And now there's a ticking clock on the show, right? Because we need to find these girls before um, they go the way of Aaron. So ticking clock on Katie and Missy. Um, and, and we're really pulling for, for Mare to, to come through. So there we go. I love this episode. I thought yeah. it was great. And uh, I love talking to you. Email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Richard, until next week where can folks find you i'm gonna be waiting by the phone because if mayor decides to go on the saturday date with richard maybe colin will call me and i can be the back even if he might be a suspect in my head i don't i don't care that's fine what if what if call what if mayor decides to go with colin are you gonna do like a richard richard on richard we date? can talk about writing yeah that's fine okay yeah. <laughs> um okay. uh speaking of writing i tweet at rylaws and write on vf.com until we head back to east town next week joanna where can people find you Oh, yeah. Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And you can also see me hiding pints of ice cream and various healthsome, wholesome frozen snacks um, around the San Francisco Bay Area. You never know. Check a freezer. You never know. If you're in I'm Marin in. County, yeah. if you're in <laughs> Oakland, just check a freezer. <laughs> check a freezer. And we will see you next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 